welcome to a new podcast about Stargate and the Stargate continuum of shows. We are going to be talking about various episodes of Stargate, starting with Stargate 1. And I am Trishy Matson, and I am a longtime fan of the show, at least of the original show. I've seen some of the others. So my name is Andrew Pontius. I watched Stargate SG-1 from the very beginning, from the very first premiere of the show on Showtime in 1997. I've been watching it on and off ever since, and watched some of the subsequent shows as well. Also watched the movie when it came out. And so I'm coming to the show as sort of a, a longtime veteran of it, having kind of watched it and rewatched watched it. And I'm David Schaub, and I am the sucker. <laughs> I have not watched this show. I have watched the movie. I have watched the episodes we're going to discuss today. And actually, I'm in the strange position that I have actually watched all of Stargate Atlantis and Stargate Universe. <laughs> so I'm not unaware that Stargates are a thing, but I actually have no context for the development of them and what happened in the original series. So I kind of have the movie to go on and everything else is like, okay, what's going on here? How does this work? I have the problem of not knowing what's going to happen next, or is that a benefit? We'll see. <laughs> so it's worth asking why are we doing this? Um, there are a lot of Stargate podcasts out there already. A lot of podcasts. That happened long ago and that are still happening now. A couple of reasons. First of all, there's more talk of a new series coming out or being planned or hoped for. Uh, of course, that's kind of happens a lot <laughs> and things fall through, but it's a possibility. Also, there's a Kickstarter going on as we record this on October 18, 2020 for a new RPG by Wyvern Gaming, which is already fully funded and that ends, I think, October 29 or so. And also, this is just a nice show. You know, I have fond memories of watching it and talking it over with my sister, who was also watching it at the time. We saw the uh, rebroadcasts on Fox a little after the, like six months or so after the Showtime originals aired. You know, it's it's a nice show with mostly nice people on the team. You know, there's camaraderie, there's humor, there's uh, some uh, scary stuff to up the stakes a little bit. It's kind of a comfort food show for me, and we can all use some comfort food these days. Yeah, I was kind of trying to go over, like, why do I, you know, why do I like the show? Why do I think the show is kind of interesting? So we are all listeners of a podcast network called The Incomparable, theincomparable.com, all one word. And they have a show called Unjustly, Unjustly Maligned, which is about it shows and other things which have not gotten a lot of credit over the years. The very first episode of it was a show about SG-1, and they did talk in that episode about various aspects of the show and what, what might have made it less popular, less critically acclaimed than other shows. And I do think that part of it, it was it's kind of an old-fashioned show in certain ways. It's kind of a, a show that harks back to older styles of TV seasons like um, mainstream TV shows or syndicated TV shows. I know, uh, Trish and David, you are both on the Supergirl podcast, mm -hmm. and I think the CW superhero TV shows have a lot in common with SG-1 in that the CW TV shows are mainstream shows, they're episodic, they're relatively low budget uh, considering, uh, and they're, they're relatively, they're kind of melodramatic instead of dramatic. They're not trying to be some really deep show about the human condition. They're just kind of people doing heroic things and fighting against evil and, and that sort of thing. I think, I think SG-1 is a lot of that as well. And then for me, you know, you mix in the fact that it's got this background from the movie that is maybe a little unusual for a TV show to kind of go that in that sort of Baroque 
direction with the sort of bombastic music and and exotic backgrounds and and things. And so it kind of imported all this stuff into it, into what was otherwise a fairly regular mainstream show. And that's kind of an interesting mix for me of things that you you don't get. You don't get everywhere else. And also like a bunch of the other CW shows, it's filmed in Vancouver. Yes. <laughs> with lots of coastal British Columbia as being the place for all aliens. Planets with trees. Yeah. David, I think you have a uh, some some recaps for us. Just to note why I'm doing this, one of the couple of other things is uh, I have to admit, I have not seen the cartoon either. I feel a little bad about that, but not too bad. Wasn't there another cartoon that came out like last year? I think there were some webisodes. Webisodes. Okay. I haven't seen those either. Yeah, yeah. Having seen the later shows, it feels very wrong for me to have not actually seen the original show. I don't quite (laughs) know how this happened. I feel it's a mistake. (laughs) And part of me being here is I felt a need to correct this mistake. And also the idea of doing a podcast where I'm talking to people who know the show, but I have no knowledge as to what's coming seems very interesting. But I do have to apologize now because I'm going to ask a lot of stupid questions that other people will fully understand because they have seen the show. The plan is, I believe that we're going to try and keep these episodes fairly limited to the stories we're discussing. So the spoilers for future episodes will be a minimum, but but there's definitely a difference context that I either bring or don't bring. I should note that I have a parallel webpage, which is going to roughly list the plan for the podcast. That might change at a moment's notice, but it'll record roughly which episodes we're going to cover, because I don't think we're planning on covering all of the episodes. We're planning on covering some episodes per podcast, and then probably skipping some and then doing some more episodes. I'm also going to have to watch a few more episodes than that, because I need some context as to what's going on. We'll put that in the show notes, and people can sort of see roughly what our plan is, even though that might change. Right. So we are not going to try to do all 20 to 22 episodes of all 10 seasons of Stargate, let alone the spinoffs that continued after that. That would make this a slog. (laughs) And we want to have fun while we're doing this podcast. And so, yes, we are going to have a curated list of episodes. And, uh, you know, we have plans now that may change a little bit, but we're definitely going to pick and choose some episodes. And hopefully that'll help make the discussions a little more interesting uh, and focused than if we were just doing every episode in sequence. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be doing them in sequence, but not every episode. It's, again, it's a lot like the CW shows. I mean, they've got pretty much 20 episodes, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. It just feels like a slog. They're, a lot of them are filler. We can narrow that down to the good ones and to the necessary ones for the, you know, for the arcs and for everything else. Uh, we want to have SG fun on this podcast. <laughs> right. We've been kicking around some ideas and SG fun is definitely a top contender. <laughs> Another possible title for this podcast is SG Wonderful, or SG Unearthed, since we're going back and revisiting stuff. A little quippy quote title would be, thanks, send more, which we'll explain when we get into episode one, or something that would be a lot of fun as a title, but we would have to apologize to Kathy Campbell every time (laughs) if we called it Snakes in Your Ears. But it is a great title. It's a great title. (laughs) Ah, okay. Well, I think that's enough background. Uh, So, David, why don't you kick us off with a recap? 
Children of the Gods, one year after the first Stargate trip to Abydos, bored soldiers guard the unused Stargate. Some aliens gate in and kill or capture the guards. O'Neill is brought in and Hammond forces him to tell the truth. O'Neill and crew then go to Abydos. The captured soldier is abruptly killed. Carter and Jackson figure out how to access more Stargates. Unfortunately, Jackson's wife, Share, and Skara are captured and gated away. Instead of being killed, Shara is possessed by Agauld. Tilk is unhappy. After regrouping on Earth, they gate after the aliens. They are quickly captured, but escape with Tilk's help. But Skara is also possessed. They all escape back to Earth, but maybe... Kowalski got possessed. Dun, 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 dun. I was going to go with dun-dun-dun, but yeah, okay. <laughs> Whether you think Kowalski got possessed will depend on which version of the first two stories, or first two episodes, uh, you yeah. actually watched. There are multiple versions mm-hmm. which are surprisingly different, and I believe we've all watched different permutations of these episodes, <laughs> which might make this conversation interesting, because some of us might have <laughs> complaints, and the other people will go... So it's going to be an interesting experience. Well, the first thing that really struck me about this is how on earth did Jack O'Neill, when he confessed his lies, how did he get sent on any other missions? (laughs) Why wasn't he left in a holding cell forever or court-martialed? And of course, this was for plot expediency. (laughs) Well, because Hammond's actually a a big old softy is is one of the answers, the in-show answer. On the Supergirl podcast, David and I talk a lot about uh, Doyleist reasons and Watsonian reasons for what happens, i.e. the author constraints and decisions versus in-show explanations for things that happen. So going from in-show, obviously Colonel Jack O'Neill is an expert on the whole Stargate thing. So he's a very valuable resource that you wouldn't want to just throw in a cell forever. But I'm not quite sure why he gets to command the next mission instead of being an assistant to someone else who's sent as the commander. I think Hammond just really likes O'Neill. Was coming into this thinking, okay, is Hammond going to be this this hard-ass, difficult, horrible person in this show? And boy, he isn't. Yeah. He is so clearly uh, a positive force. And I'm very impressed that he was presented that way because it wasn't quite what I expected when first watching the episode. And really, if O'Neill fails, they're just going to nuke it anyway. So really, why not? (laughs) (laughs) This is an example of the sort of the early installment weirdness that you get with, you know, pilots and other first seasons sometimes of shows. In that very first episode, that very first premiere, General Hammond is very much portrayed as an opponent of the team, someone who's going to get in their way, someone who's going to obstruct and make bad things happen. And then even by the end of that first two-parter, he's being shown as having much more sort of heart. You know, he's the one who doesn't actually close it down when he should, when he said he was going to. And so he changes really, really rapidly in the first couple of episodes into someone who's going to be much more of of an ally. And yeah, he's going to be the adult in the room, but he's, he's not going to be an enemy the way some of the other people in the military are going to be. He has one of being one of my very favorite characters of the show. He doesn't get a lot to do because he's not actually going out on any of the missions, but he is, uh, he's fun. He's fun to watch. And that actor really does seem to imbue that character with the sort of gruff likability that really, really helps with the show that's written as broadly as this one. And you did mention that, you know, liking Colonel O'Neill and, you know, that's Richard Dean Anderson. He's a really likable actor, right? Like he does some things mm-hmm. in these first two episodes 
which could be considered pretty questionable. And I don't just mean, you know, disobeying orders. I mean things like joking about the deaths of people that, you know, when I was, when I was watching them again, I was like, you know, that's kind of bloodthirsty, you know, that's kind of really nasty. And yet he's very jovial and friendly and, and everything. And, you know, a lot of that's just the charisma of that actor who was brought in to anchor the show, to be one of the big things, the draws that would bring people into the show. And he, and he does a really good job of it. He is one of the, one of the best actors again, that we see in these in these first two episodes. Right. I think O'Neill is a man that has seen some stuff and gone through some major tragedies in his life, and I really believe that the dark humor and wry wit are integral to how he copes with everything. So to me, it seems like an essential part of his character that he's going to make kind of twisted jokes sometimes about sad, bad things that happen. Just to note the two versions, the original version was a pilot and it wasn't on normal network TV. So they wanted to make it more and be edgier. So it includes like nudity and a lot more holes being blown up into people and lacked some of the sort of just fun that I was expecting from this show. I did not expect going from the movie to be hitting something that is, in some regards, darker and creepier than the movie, right? <laughs> that was not my expectation. I was shocked. But in the 2009 edit, there's a massive attempt to try and re-edit and cut down and turn it back into a pilot of what the show actually is. And we can get into some of those changes, but the changes are not small. Yep. One example is Hammond was never going to stop closing the gate at the end of the episode. That that conversation didn't even happen. I think we'll go through the changes as we as we approach them. So let's go through the episode and uh, as things come up that are massive changes, I'll bring them up. A lot of the changes were just small edits. They changed the audio, but it, it is a big difference. I will also say, and, and maybe this would have been better done at the very beginning of the podcast, I'm going to uh, mention what I would consider to be a content warning for people. We are going to go over a particular scene in one version of the pilot that has sexual violence. And that problem exists in both versions. It's just much worse in the first. Yeah. I will bring it up again when we get to the actual uh, scene. One thing that I noticed really quickly is I didn't realize how old this show was until I saw <laughs> how old the cars were and how thick the laptops were. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, this show was way older than I thought it was. This is the late 90s. I mean, those, the cars, that one scene, I did notice that as well. Those cars look like they're from the 70s. Exactly. <laughs> and I think they were they were trying to give an ambiance of military personnel, I think, that was maybe a little older than the actual time frame of the, of the actual show. Right. I guess talking of the mil military, I'll just mention most of the stuff Stargate teams are Air Force people, so they are airmen and airwomen. We're going to call them soldiers a lot, yep. and that's technically wrong. We know the difference. Just, just deal with it. <laughs> Sorry. Fair enough. So... From the beginning, with this unknown person that uh, General Hammond assumes is just Ra leaving with his guards, who turn out to be the Jaffa. Right. And then uh, the next scene is uh, Jack O'Neill getting reactivated. Or I guess at this point, he's just taken back for consultation and gets reactivated later. One of the things that it kind of hit me again about the show when we were watching the, the premiere episode is how at certain points, not the whole thing, there are 
probably pacing issues with the whole show, but have there certain scenes where they just amp up the dramatic tension in a very satisfying way? Like that first scene where everything's quiet and the soldiers are just kibitzing, and then there's this mysterious thing happening with the gate, and then the enemies appear, and this battle that, you know, oh no, people are dying. And then, you know, we come to the end of it, and Hammond comes in and sees Paphos and the eyes glow, and this big dramatic moment. I just think that they handled that really well. They, they sort of ramped up the tension, had the confrontation, and, and ended it. It's supposed to be the moment that really draws you into the show, that makes you sit up and pay attention. Mm-hmm. And if you're into that kind of show, I think it does that really well. You know, again, I, I got to experience this for the very first time, watching this on Showtime more than 20 years ago, and I didn't know what to expect. And that told me a lot of what to expect. I got to expect that there's going to be some flashy technology, there's going to be some exotic aliens, there's going to be fight scenes, and there's going to be drama. And I did uh, I did like that. Yeah, I think most people watching the show, um, certainly when it came, up, came out again, you know, when it would be rebroadcast on Fox, most of those people, including me, had never seen the movie. So they had to do a lot of heavy work to right. tell you quickly what was going on <laughs> right. without just going through a massive info dump wall of text at the beginning of the show. So I think they did a pretty good job of dropping you in and then feeding you more and more details to explain what had happened before. I agree. I did not feel out of place. I came from the movie, which I watched a week earlier, and everything seemed to fit reasonably well. There was some obvious course corrections in that I think in the movie they go across the universe and here we're clearly inside the galaxy. That's fine. But everything else felt moderately consistent. Right. And some of that they lampshaded by saying what you thought was true before just was not true. You know, it's not that Ra was the only alien god. It actually turns out that there are many worlds and a whole race of gold instead of just one invader who conveniently was blown up at the end of the movie. Uh, Now there's this whole network of Stargates and many worlds out there, which takes us to the whole structure of the show is that most episodes, the team goes and visits another world, tries to make allies or may find even more enemies or just goes through some weird stuff. (laughs) Sets up the show really well. One thing, and I noticed it at the time and I I like it on rewatch as well, that they're adapting the movie and they're broadening it out. They're turning the concept of the movie into the concept for a multi-season TV show. And it feels pretty natural that they're doing that. And the characters themselves express surprise when something is different than the movie, as something is expanding out in a way that the movie didn't. I really like that they lampshaded virtually all of it with the characters reacting in the way we are going to react as viewers as well. Right. The MacGuffin of the movie is this ridiculous one chevron. And I have some technical questions we'll deal with after this, because <laughs> my brain is just very confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've basically avoided that entire conversation, but they haven't quite told me what they're replacing that conversation with. <laughs> but yeah. the one thing they did really well is all of the assumptions the characters have is based on the assumption that, well, they've tried hundreds of combinations. Well, okay, there's probably, with 38 chevrons, there's about a billion and a half combinations, depending on how what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Yeah, don't, don't think about that. So hundreds isn't very many, but... I love the fact that everything Hammond does is based on the assumption that there's only two ends to the Stargate. Yeah, no, it's really consistent. Yeah, right. He knows that O'Neill is li- was lying because they obviously had to come from the other end of the Stargate. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And yeah. so he was just manipulating O'Neill because he knew it was going to happen. Right. And 
And then they even lampshade, which surprised me. Why couldn't they go to other locations? Because obviously other permutations would work. And then they come up with a reason for that. And I was so impressed. <laughs> it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but that little bit of, yeah, we actually are thinking about it a bit. Yes. I really quite liked. So now we're on the second scene? <laughs> <laughs> we got to speed up a little. Um, but yeah, the, the whole next scene, which is like um, bringing O'Neill back, which again, if you've seen the movie, is again, a really nice lampshade of, not lampshade, reference, whatever, acknowledgement of the movie universe. And then he comes back and they have that big scene with, with again, Hammond kind of needling him and, and trying to get him to admit that he didn't actually blow up everyone on the other side of the gate, which makes Hammond seem like, you know, again, this really dangerous opponent, but, you know, he doesn't wind up being that way, but, it, you know, it adds a lot of drama to it, and it shows you that O'Neill is, again, he's the good guy. He wanted to keep these people alive. He wasn't willing to obey orders when they would kill innocent people. Maybe it was a little slow, but I liked that scene. I liked how it set up other stuff, and it, and it demonstrated O'Neill's character really nicely. What did other people think? Well, regarding Hammond's inconsistency of turning out to be basically a nice guy and a team guy later, uh, maybe it's like, you know, they used to tell teachers on your first day of school, be really mean and strict. Um, and that way you'll have control. Uh, and then yeah. you can ease off later if you want to. True. But you have to have control at the beginning. But also, you know, Hammond doesn't know Jack right. other than uh, as a report of uh, some guy who left. Uh, so it makes sense that, you know, he, he would be pretty strict and uh, gruff to start with. And as I said before, though, I think Hammond just realizes O'Neill lied and he'll use the nuke if he has to, but he was just using it as a ploy. Yeah, yeah. Like Hammond was saying those to make O'Neill tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, he doesn't really want to throw a nuke into a Stargate if he can help it. He's just keeping his options open. After Jack admits, General Hammond, sir, I regret to inform you that my report was not entirely <laughs> accurate. <laughs> Hammond sends him to a holding cell and he reminisces and expositions for us with Kowalski about the previous mission. And Jack says that Skara, the Abydos teenage boy who idolized him and became one of his, you know, rebel soldiers there, reminded him of, of his own son who died just before the Abydos mission, which also helps explain why Kurt Russell being so humorless in the movie and now... <laughs> right. You know, having gone through the grieving process, O'Neill, Richard Dean Anderson has loosened up and tells jokes once in a while. That's a really nice, you know, bit of exposition, bit of telling you what happened in the movie, but it goes by really quick. Yep. Whenever a TV show can manage to do kind of two things at once, have a moment of bonding and exposition, have a moment of drama and exposition, I have to give him kudos for it. So I, I think they did really well with that. It's also building up the character of Kowalski right. a little bit so that yep. it'll make something that happens later more dramatic. And in the 2009 edit, I think they actually removed the reminder of what happened to O'Neill's son. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That line that line got actually taken out of the 2009 edit. Oh. oh, well, I think that's important to the character. There are changes in the 2009 edit that are not for the better. Almost all of them are, mm -hmm. but not all of them. One thing that I really liked about the show was, you know, it was kind of messy in that it was trying to integrate a very different style of a movie into a TV show. And so, of course, you see the seams in some places, you see the compromises in some places. But I love that. I love that messiness of it, that they couldn't get it quite right because they were doing it for the very first time. <laughs> I can see them wanting to 
tighten it up, but I also... I love the version that I saw for the most part. So how do people think of the thanks send more scene? <laughs> right. So just to explain, they're trying to figure out a way to reestablish contact with Abydos. And Jack says that a way to make sure that, you know, people on the other side are really still our people is to send through a coded message, which is a box of Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because Daniel Jackson suffered from allergies and the Kleenex box comes back with written on it, thanks, send more. And so, yay, we know Daniel's still out there and still Daniel. I don't think that his allergies are ever referred to again after the pilot, though. Or at least I don't remember. They are. They are? There's at least two places where they are. So Awesome. They don't mention it a lot, and they actually come up with the reason why they don't mention it anymore. So, again, <laughs> we'll get to it. But yeah. Okay. I think they actually do a decent job of making that into a, a non-dropped aspect of, of the show. Again, that was a scene that really endeared me to the show first time through. This idea that O'Neill would know to think outside of the box to get to Daniel and they would have enough of a bond for it to work. Yes. It's a shorthand in the show because it's a shorthand code, but it's also a shorthand sort of meta aspect of the, the characters and of how it's all going to work. You know, it was a little touch, but I liked it and it, yeah. it kept things going. I really liked it. Maybe have some technical questions later on about what it means to block a gate and what it doesn't mean to block a gate, <laughs> which confuses me a bit regarding this working. But hey, it works. That's okay. Right. That's it. So then there's the boardroom meeting where Hammond tells Jack that he's assigning an astrophysicist, uh, Sam Carter, to the team. And it turns out that it's Samantha Carter. She comes in. She's fairly defensive, insists on being ca called Captain, not doctor and gives the line just because my reproductive organs are on the inside instead of the outside doesn't mean I'm not fully capable. <sighs> Yeah. And there's some more dialogue and stuff. Uh, Jack says, I like women. I've just got a lot of little problem with scientists. And Carter says, I logged over 100 hours in airspace in the Gulf War. Is that tough enough? So this is all just bristling with tension. At the time, I think I thought it was a little overblown. But at the same time, I was like, yay, stand up for yourself, Carter. Knowing what I know now, it would seem entirely false if there was not some opposition that Carter had to wade through. The 2009 basically made this scene shorter, which makes it at least more palatable. With watching this, I had to appreciate, boy, is this military organization full of a lot of white dudes. Mm -hmm. It's challenging because O'Neill comes off as a sexist jerk <laughs> yeah. instead of just a scientist hating jerk. So it's it's a little bit of a challenging scene, I think, in that regard. But they know what they're doing and they're, they're playing it intentionally. And I think it's okay. But boy, I was happy it was shorter in the uh, later edit. I don't mind the show actually portraying him as something of a sexist jerk because, you know, he probably is, right? You know, he came up in this culture and it's, you know, it's, there aren't that many women around that he has had to treat as equals. And so, yeah, him being flawed in that way is is actually not that unrealistic for a show. You know, he could be a nice person, but he could still be sexist. Sure. I don't think the show is actually trying to be that nuanced. <laughs> I don't think the show is capable of doing that scene the justice that it deserves. <laughs> Even though it is actually a valid scene, it totally is a valid scene. They just can't do it. And there are actually going to come a lot of points in the show where the fact that the writing is not, shall we say, Emmy caliber, is going to bite it. It's going to keep it from being the best show that it could be. And this is one of those, this is one of those scenes. So, so yeah, I actually would have welcomed a better version of the scene that has the same content in it that her having to prove herself in, in you know, what is an unfair way to these people. But this wasn't satisfying in that regard, is I guess all I'll say about it. We'll get to more sexism 
them as we go. Right. Well, Sam Carter, every time she gets a new reassignment, she probably has to yeah, go through yeah. this stuff. But And then it's all kind of dropped later, which is, you know, okay. Right. I, it would not be fun if we had to do Sexism 101 every time there was a scene with Sam. <sighs> okay. So, but anyway, they get through that eventually. And there's a short dialogue, which I think is kind of recapitulated later about the whole thing. You know, why don't we just bury the Stargate? Right. Uh, Jack says that won't work. They know we're here now. They know we have more advanced weapons than the ancient Egyptians. They have spaceships. We know this. They can come whether or not. So we have to do some reconnaissance. And so Hammond gives in and says, okay. okay. And that's a perfectly good argument. I quite like it. Yep. This can of worms has already been opened. There's nothing to do to stop it. We just have to deal with it. There's really no option. And blinding ourselves would be dumb. And I like that the fact that the story is smart in that way. It's a good setup. When it, it uses the bits from the movie that it needs. Exactly. Right. The fact there was a ship in the movie. It was a spaceship. In addition to the gate, I really liked that they were able to, again, build a relatively coherent show out of pieces from this different movie. As a newbie to this show, I, I do have the question of, well, then what did the Gould look like when they showed up on Earth the first time? Because I don't know. <laughs> there is a potential answer to that. We will get there when we get there. We, we will get there. That's actually an interesting, it's an interesting conversation. I actually never thought about that before, which is, yeah, huh. But there is a, there is a potential answer to that, so. Okay, so we have some techno babbling from Sam Carter, and then they go through the gate. Jack actually pushes her through as she's techno babbling. <sighs> yeah, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Again, showing the, the humor of the show, because then they were both explaining some of the stuff from the movie and having a little bit of fun with it. Yeah, again, I like these kind of scenes right, in the show. Right, They do some exposition very well in this show. Sometimes the exposition is just beautifully played out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes not, but mostly, but a lot of times, yes. <laughs> yeah, but having Jack as the character getting impatient and just pushing her through <laughs> yep. spares the audience. We know this, this exposition isn't going to go on forever because Jack won't stand for it. <laughs> So anyway, they go make it to the other side. There's a, a confrontation, but then Daniel's there, and it's all okay. Daniel welcomes them back. Jack brushes by Daniel and uh -huh. goes to Scara, returns <laughs> his salute. So there was a lovely little character moment. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Uh, Sharae is there too. There's a bit with the way Michael Shanks, right? Yes, is playing Daniel Jackson. He's really mimicking James Spader quite a lot in the first couple of, of episodes, I think. And uh, it's kind of funny to watch. Like, again, it made this bridge to the movie a lot better, but it's also just kind of funny to see him. I don't think Richard Dean Anderson did quite as much of a, of a of an attempt to really mimic Kurt Russell as uh, Michael Shanks said. Of course, Michael Shanks is not as famous an actor, so he was kind of chosen to be that. The Wikipedia page says Shanks was cast because he did, quote, the perfect imitation of James Spader. Right. <laughs> yeah, and you can definitely see it. Uh, there's a bit of tech stuff where Carter is marveling at the uh, gate mechanism on this side, and we get the line, it took us 15 years and three supercomputers <laughs> to MacGyver a system for the gate on Earth. They just could not resist. Yep. They just couldn't resist that little salute. Thanks, Richard Dean Anderson, for giving us a star presence <laughs> on this show, going out from the gate. Uh, and uh, it was a fun little moment. And again, it tells you this show is not going to be ultra serious like the movie was. But on the other hand, it may make more sense than the movie, because I don't believe we saw that dialer in the movie. So how anyone used the Stargate from this side before was entirely 
unclear. They got there and then they got back at the very end of the movie and there was definitely no dial home device. That's new to the show. So yeah, hey. Okay, there's some exposition and stuff and, uh, you know, Daniel knows that the those soldiers who came through did not come through from here and he takes them to another site and shows walls covered with symbols and this, this is kind of a map of the galaxy and where these things go. So, you know, it's a whole galaxy of places that the Stargate goes. But meanwhile, back at the gate, Apophis and his uh, Jaffa come through and they take Sharae and Skara and Tilk notices that Skara has an earth weapon. Ferretti, who was wounded in this exchange, manages to catch the gate coordinates as Apophis and company leave. So a couple things about all of this stuff with Jackson. The first response I had was, and the show tries to kind of answer it, but doesn't entirely, is, oh my, is Daniel Jackson the white savior oh, yeah. hanging out on this place? Mm. Oh yeah. my. Indeed. And yes. they try to comment it on it later in the episode, and they fail. We get a one moment later in the episode where Carter notes that he was given Sharae as a, a present. Yep. Right, and she says, and you accepted. And then it's dropped. And he starts to try to explain, but then there's shooting and stuff, so. <laughs> and even in all of this bit, it's like, oh boy, a bunch of white people show up and uh, are fed food by the people who actually live there. Whew, okay. Well, we'll see how the rest of the show goes. This is part of a bigger problem with this world from the movie. There's a lot of problematic aspects to, and you know, I think we're kind of hoping to get to the movie at some point. We're not going to talk about it in, in any detail today, but there are a lot of problematic aspects even to the, to the movie. And when they bring a lot of that stuff over to the show, it is also quite problematic. There is an othering of, you know, Middle Eastern culture that is not great. There is, as you said, the, the white savior aspect of it. There's the kind of the sexism aspect of it. There's just, there's a lot like, and the, you know, We'll get to Teal'c as well. This is this is not a show that examines its own biases, its own racism, basically, when you come right down to it. And that is not great when you come right down to it. There's the one line where they refer to the kids as one of our kids, as if they kind of are in possession of the children of this planet. The colonel also has the wonderful line, get this man some clean clothing, he stinks. Ah. Oh. So yeah, this episode gets more rough. I don't know. We'll just all, all see how it goes. This is probably my biggest concern going forward in this show. And uh, I, I don't know what to expect. There's a strange line in here where it seems they suggest that the ghoul showed up on Earth and took on Egyptian mythology, whereas I'm sure what happened is the ghoul is Egyptian mythology that they imposed on humans. Yes, that makes a lot more sense. The ghoul are not going to pretend to be anything for humanity. Uh, so, so there was an odd line there that didn't make much sense. The show clearly is going to make a lot of assumptions about ease of language and communication because it's a TV show. Oh, well, that's, yeah, yeah. In the movie, they had the time to deal with the fact that the natives were speaking their own language, which is very different than English. In the TV show, they dispense with that. Like, basically, everybody speaks English, including Teal'c, and they don't lampshade it at all. And they, I think the show creators have mentioned that, you know, they, they had no choice. They couldn't take on that extra level. That will never get better, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but it does lead to some, some weird aspects of, of things, you know, like part of culture shock, part of getting over knowing someone from a new culture, a different culture, is getting to know their language, how they express things in concepts in their own tongue. And you just can never do that on the show because... Everybody speaks the same language. So it's, yeah, it's weird. I do really like the setup for the TV show where Carter even says when they bring back the thousands of addresses and they figured out why they couldn't previously gate to any of them, which is all kind of nice. And they have this wonderful 
wonderful lanterning line of, we'll be able to produce two or three destinations a month. <laughs> yep. Which is yep. the most setting up of a TV show line I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's okay because we're about to go stargating back to the uh, British Columbia coast. So that'll be fun. <laughs> After they get back from that disastrous mission, uh, they find out that, hey, uh, the, the uh, Stargate Command wised up and installed a titanium iris on the Stargate, and that'll be their insurance against any more surprises. And we see later how that works out. If you're wondering how the physics of that works, that this somehow giant metal thing can just sort of appear almost out of nowhere and then disappear again... Yeah, that's never explained either. Yeah, just don't worry about it. I'm okay with that. The only question I actually have about the iris is why it doesn't get evaporated by the event plume. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. If they just let the event plume happen and then close the iris, I would have been fine. Okay, so moving on uh, as Children of the Gods Part 2 uh, opens... We see the airwoman from the first part who was taken at the very beginning, clad in flowing, flowing white. Apophis inspects her and says, lovely, you could be the vessel for my future queen. So we find out a bit more about what's going on there. But I'm not the one you must finally please. And this woman comes and it turns out that she is his queen or his co-ruler, I suppose. And her gold parasite rejects the blonde airwoman. And we never see her again, unless it's in, you know, another cut. And I don't know if she is dead in canon or just got relegated to the harem or what. Let me start covering the difference between the cuts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and this is also when watching the version on iTunes, which is slightly censored, but is mostly the same as I think the original Showtime production. This isn't the first time we see her on the planet. First, we actually get the first of the harem scenes where all of the potential queen bodies Hosts. are being stored in a harem. And this makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> it is bonkers. There's a room where you're storing all these potential hosts' bodies, but then why would there be a harem of a bunch of male gazy women just for the queen's bodies? It just doesn't make any sense. And this was all forced on them as a function, at least my understanding, of Showtime to try and make it more edgy. But when I first watched it, there's this massive harem scene where they first collect the airman before they take her in. And that's just entirely gone from the 2009 edit, which is definitively better. Now, they go too far because Apophis kills the woman. Very obviously in the original edit, and then in this one, they thought maybe that was too edgy and too bloody, and therefore they don't kill her. Uh. But the 2009 edit doesn't communicate that to you. Yep. Right. I was left wondering. So they're both flawed. <laughs> There's a couple of, of things. That, again, good dramatic reasons for this kind of scene. Um, again, it shows the rhythm of what this scene is going to happen like so that when we get to Shari later, it's a repetition. It's the same thing again. You know what's going to happen. You know you know how it's going to go up until the point where you don't. The deaths adding dramatic tension to the, the whole thing, you know, and we'll, and we'll get to it with Shari. And again, a bit of a content warning that this is, again, sexual violence. You know, these women are, are their clothes are taken off for this. This white woman who we don't otherwise see again gets the benefit from the show's perspective of not being shown entirely, mm -hmm. whereas the non-white woman, who is a much more important character in the show, is not given that consideration mm -hmm. in, in the original thing. So that's sexism and racism when you put all those things together. We, we kind of talk about how the 2009 edit helped with certain aspects of it, helped with the violence maybe, 
But, you know, it's baked into the show that what is basically a, a conceptual rape scene is part of the concept of the show. And you can't take it back out without rewriting the show in, in a way that they were obviously not willing to do. So again, that's part of the problematic nature of the show. That's part of the people writing the show thinking this would be a good idea. We'll get to more of this ahead, but I want to make sure we cover it. You know, Skara gets the same thing happen to him. He doesn't get a lurid scene where he's shown. That's the real difference. Uh-huh. Plot-wise, the show is trying to say, we're the good guys, we're rooting for the good guys. But in terms of what it actually shows you, in terms of the gaze of the show, we think you'll like seeing what happens to these women. That is that is a bad thing for the show. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, back on Earth, Hammond announces that the president has decided we're going to make peaceful contact with other worlds and seek allies. We're setting up nine teams. O'Neill will head SG-1 and Kowalski will head SG-2. Uh, he wants Daniel to work from Earth as a consultant to everyone. And Daniel says, no, my wife is out there. I have to go out there. Let me be on a team. And for some reason, Hammond gives in and says, okay. <laughs> yep. To be fair, he's probably the only person who has a chance of communicating. Like there's, there's arguments both ways. Realistically, they probably need someone with his skill set on every team. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming we're not going to see very much of nine teams, but I have no idea. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> they never came up with that secondary show, Stargate SG-2. That was never a show. <laughs> All right. Back on Chulak, we find out later, I think next episode, what this other planet is called, where the holding area and the harems are. Skara tries to stop the guards from taking Sharae, and we get a line of dialogue from Teal'c, where we find out that he may be not just a mean soldier, he may have some sympathy for these people he's helping to oppress. He tells Skara, your death cannot help her. If you kind of go back, like we have a natural wing going over every little aspect of it, there are definitely camera shots of his face. Yeah, Even in the very first scene, True. in hindsight, he's shown a having misgivings, being uncomfortable or being unhappy with, with how Apophis is going ahead and, you know, killing people and torturing people. Again, I think the show actually does that pretty well and as subtle as it gets with these things to show the arc of Teal being ready at the end to rebel. You're right. It does not come out of the blue. It's hard, though, because Teal's reason for changing sides was that humans have a chance of beating them, not just that he was unhappy. Right been through this and has incubated many of these ghouls and has been through this process many times himself. There's no way that you can just say, oh, he experiences this and says that it's bad and decides to change his way. His change of plans is strategic yep. more than a, a moral decision. Yeah, no, and again, I, I like that about it, but we'll, we'll get to it. Yep. Right. So Sharae bites a guard and Apophis laughs at her spirit. And what I saw of the cut version, basically, we jump to hearing her screaming. But I understand that a lot more goes on than that in the original version. You know, I'll just jump in again with that content warning that this, you know, we're going to be talking about the scene now, talking about sexual violence depicted in the show. So I want to skip this part if you, if you need to. And it is definitively sexual violence. It is filmed every which way to be sexual violence, to an amazing degree. I was shocked when I got to this point in the show. This is a TV show from my perspective, <laughs> because I don't have the background that this was a Showtime premiere. Mm -hmm. And we had been through this scene once before, and it was questionable. And then it just went way off the deep end. Now, yep. the challenge here is they also had another harem scene where they go back and Cherie is pulled out of the harem where we get to see a bunch more women. There's no nudity specifically there. But then they have her brought before Apathos and stripped naked. The iTunes version do just fuzz over her pubic hair, but that's the only censoring that happens here. And then in every way, this is filmed as rape. And the ghoul is even very phallic in nature. And it's like, whoa, I was shocked. 
And that actress is good enough that she can convey the terror that she feels in, you know, in being this helpless and being this exposed. And it just goes on and on, right? It's actually probably not that many seconds, but it's, again, it's just dwelling on her terror and her humiliation. And the show obviously really wants to be able to do that, really wants to do that in that moment. And that's a, that's a choice that the show made. The only real difference between the 2009 and the original is just the amount of nudity. So pretty much every single shot of her, her breasts are visible. And honestly, I don't think that's the problem with this scene. If they felt that they were cleaning this up and fixing the problem by taking away the nudity, they did not fix the problem. Well, they didn't understand the problem even. The one other difference I should note in the 2009 version is it actually has in the scene Tilk shaking his head. Oh, yeah. Okay. And that is, I suppose, an improvement, but still, I don't think Teal'c really made a moral decision here. Oh, no. Right. Well, I think Teal'c's philosophy, life philosophy at this point is I'd rather be one of the wolves than one of the sheep that get preyed on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, back with SG-1, Carter is asking Daniel to tell her about Sheree and how they met, yeah. and she's expecting a nice little story, and Jack <laughs> jumps in and says she was a gift, and Daniel confirms that she was a gift from the elders of Abydos, and she says, and you accept it? <laughs> yep. And then they run into some religious pilgrims and can't continue that conversation. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the movie... There are reasons, kind of, and it would have been awkward to say no. But <laughs> yeah, this uh, doesn't really get explored, although I don't remember if they come back to it in conversation later in this series or if all I'm remembering is what happened in the movie. I don't remember them. I don't remember them ever coming back to that aspect of things because the more immediate problem is right. the one they focus on. This is all we're going to get yeah. of them acknowledging that the movie was problematic. That's it. All right. And it was, but uh, we'll just move on with the plot here. So Daniel does the God Gambit. He says, we came through the gate and they kneel and the team just basically goes with it. One of the pilgrims says, are you here to choose? And Daniel looks at Jack and Jack shrugs. <laughs> so, oh yeah, sure. Choosing is good, says Daniel, <laughs> yeah. obviously having no clue what choice they are being inferred to be making. I do appreciate that in this. And I think this is also from the movie as well, that there are plenty of parts in the movie where Daniel Jackson is totally at a loss and just doesn't know. Yep. And they carry a lot of that over into the show that he's the expert who gets to be puzzled and confused a lot of the time. And again, doing a... Uh, James Spader impression, you know, he, it's a good through line. It is, it's funny. It works pretty well because, again, it means that they're learning when we're learning and they get to react the same way that we do. So I liked it. One slight concern I have with the show going forward is this culture they seem to be coming upon looks very sort of Roman Empire. And I, I do start to wonder, yeah. does the show understand that they know nothing about Earth culture's post about 5,000 years ago? So I don't know what to expect of other human populations and cultures going forward in this show. I don't know if it'll make any sense, and I suppose I'll live with it. Yeah, we'll just say that cultures develop in different directions, and they're not all going to be primitive cultures that we run into. Also, I'm pretty sure that this is probably more Romanesque, because that's the props they had. <laughs> yeah. You do not get the sense that they spent luxurious amounts of money on the sets for this part of the episode. No. They showed up, they got captured, that's all that matters. They had their Empire Strikes Back scene, right? Yep. They're in their 
there with the with the big baddie, and they have about as much success <laughs> as they did there. They get taken to Chulak City, and they're having a nice dinner with the pilgrims and everyone else. And uh, then Apophis and his new queen, Sharae, turn up. Daniel, of course, tries to talk to her and, of course, gets the whole team captured. And they're reunited with Skara in the holding cell. And I don't believe we get the name for that Gua'uld, for Apophis's queen in this episode. I don't think so. I don't think so. So we're going to leave that as a, as a surprise for you, David. Yeah, we'll just call her Sharae for now. It's also unclear to me whether or not they can transfer bodies again. I'm assuming they can, but I have no evidence of that. You have no evidence of that. Right. We'll leave that for the future. <laughs> what that life cycle is is not quite clear to me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Teal'c sees Jack's wristwatch, you know, fancy digital watch, and says, this is not gold tech. Nope. Where are you from? And Jack says, Earth. And of course, that means nothing to Teal'c. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was a good I did like that little touch. So Daniel draws the symbol, the gate symbol for Earth, and Teal'c doesn't but, yeah. say anything. He just leaves. Well, that was also a nice touch, right? Like that yes. humor and then a bit of, again, a callback to the movie. And I just really liked it. Yeah. I mean, my God, what if O'Neill had had a, like a, a cell phone? an Apple watch? <laughs> <laughs> the whole um, symbol for Earth, I'm, I'm confused because if there's only 38 symbols, obviously there's going to be more than 38 gates, but we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Right. Okay. So the next scene, uh, there's there's a choosing from the prisoners in the cell, and Daniel appears to be trying to get chosen because he's saying surely some of the host survives, and he's kind of putting himself forward. Teal'c shakes his head to this question. I don't know if he's actually just trying to get captured or if he's just trying to collect information. Like he's just blindly looking for any type of hope. Yeah, I think he was desperate enough to actually yep. be trying to be to get perhaps chosen, but he doesn't actually actually say so, so maybe that's just my interpretation. I have always believed that he was trying to get implanted as part of that, yeah. But they don't choose him. They choose Skara and some others, and so the ghoul leaves, and Apophis on the way out says, kill the rest, which seems wasteful of human resources, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess they don't worry about that a lot. So there's two things about that. I think there's an earlier scene in that prison where Daniel Jackson is talking about, oh, that wasn't Ra, that was Apophis. Like, this is the moment where the show explicitly acknowledges that yes, it's a different world, and that's what we're going to deal with going forward. And then he gets to tell everyone else that. And he's, you know, he says straight out of the Book of the Dead, they're living it. And that line really, really stayed with me, like again, many rewatches later, many years later, that this was again them expanding the show, them filling out the show according to the original uh, setup, but, you know, turning it into a world instead of just one encounter. Mm -hmm. I just think that they did that really well. And I think his, his delivery there and then the bombastic music in the background, it just made it a really dramatic moment for me. That they're like, no, this is it. This is the show. This is it. You got to get excited about it. This is it. And I thought I really liked it. But also with that, the actor plays Apophis. Uh, his name is Peter Williams, if I'm remembering correctly, if I have my my, uh, my research done correctly. He's really good in this. Like, they don't give him that much to do, but he gets to sort of vamp it up in a way that, you know, he's got this ridiculous costume and he's this ridiculous, over-the-top baddie. You know, he's like, okay, this is what I have to deal with. I'm going to deal with it. And he's always very preemptory. He's very over-the-top evil. He does a really good job with it. Like, that whole thing of kill the rest. I just love that delivery of it because it was so over-the-top. Like, yeah, you're, you're the baddie. You're the big bad. You're the one we're going to have to deal with. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Yes, it's totally wasteful. It's totally doesn't make a lot of sense. On the other hand, they, you know, they talk about how the, the gold are, are these not very logical rulers who think they're above everybody else. So it does sort of make sense. It's not really smart, but it makes sense that they would do it. And of course, it, it sets up the final segment of the whole confrontation for the episode. Right. So here's a real crisis point. Jack yells to Teal'c, I can save these people. Help me. Which is not just 
me save my life. It's let's save all these people. And Teal'c replies, many have said that, which sounds like he's totally dismissing Jack, but then he fires on, you know, his own men. And then he says, you are the first I believe can do it. And general fighting ensues. Which I think the first complete sentence we've heard from Teal for this, uh, this episode. He really doesn't have that much to say. But yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a big dramatic moment for Teal. And, uh, you know. It's unclear to me whether Teal recognized the symbol of Earth or not. And whether that was part of his decision-making process. I don't think he did. But he recognized it as a gate symbol. And maybe that was sufficient. There's aspects of Teal'c's decision-making here that was not quite clear. But, but a little murky for you, yeah. I think it's just that he recognized that it was a Stargate symbol. Yeah. I think I'd always believed that he recognized he recognized that symbol. He knew that planet. But yeah, you're right. It doesn't make that much sense. Otherwise, the big thing was that he then knew that these outsiders, that these aliens knew about Stargate addresses right. as well. Yes, exactly. Right. And could go through the Stargate. Right. And that was enough to give a fighting chance, which apparently was enough for Teal'c to finally rebel against his masters. And these, you know, Jaffa, really stormtrooper level you know, shooting accuracy. <laughs> and, you know, I, even I noticed even the first time through that, like, they kept shooting the civilians. Yeah, that's what I noticed when too. When Teal was shooting them, like, <laughs> yeah. which made it a lot easier for Teal to actually win that battle. Not the brightest. Nope. These, uh, these, these guards. Okay, so they fight. Jack yells for um, Teal to come on with them. He says, I have nowhere to go. Jack says, for this, you can stay at my place. Come on. I love that line. That is such a good line. Such a good <laughs> yeah. line. <laughs> <laughs> Off they go toward the Stargate and there's more fighting. Daniel is pawing through his notes for the coordinates <laughs> as the hostiles are advancing. <laughs> Carter is the first through, and she yells, hold your fire. They're refugees as this stream of people come through the gate. And in the cut that I watched, we see a snake jumping from a fallen Jafar into what I thought was Kowalski's ear, but later turns out to have been his neck, his which neck seems a little weird. But anyway, that's apparently how it enters Kowalski. But some people don't see that when they see the pilot. <laughs> yeah, I think I probably thought it was the ear when it started out. Yeah. Well, we saw the neck on Sheree, so it seems more likely that that was similar. Yeah. This is the case where I'm not actually quite sure how many versions of the edit it is because when I rewatched on my second viewing the 2009 edit they entirely removed the Gould going into Kowalski and as well as Kowalski's eyes glowing at the end it's like the, the, that was entirely cut out of the version because they wanted it to be its own standalone movie which is a stupid thing to do. Which is a stupid thing to do, right? Because the movie is obviously, it's obviously not a standalone movie. It's obviously meant to set up the rest of the show. Yeah. It, yeah. I don't agree with that decision either. As far as I can tell, there is no good edit of this first episode. <laughs> so yes and no. I mean, I think the original show, you know, minus, eh, you know, you got like the nude scene. Um, I think the original show, again, it set up the, the series in a really nice way. I also think of it as, as a, a, a artifact of its time. And it, it's a good artifact of its time as well. But but you're right. Yeah, what they did in this pilot, they set up some really good world building to expand. So we would have, you know, a lot of potential for a good long running series. And they set up characterization, which, of course, had been started in the movie. Some of which, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you had to reestablish all that characterization for the show for all the people who hadn't seen the movie. And I think they did a great job of that, too. Well, the one thing that we didn't quite get to was before the, the whole crowd of refugees come to the Stargate, 
the baddies go through the Stargate first and O'Neill gets to see Skara. Oh, yes. And thinks that maybe Skara's coming back to smile at him, but he's really spying because he's evil now and he shoots him, conveniently not killing him because he's a main character. But yeah, like, you know, that final crushing moment where you realize Skara has also been possessed and needs to be saved as well was a, you know, again, a pretty good moment. Right. From a dramatic standpoint. Right. The last lines of the episode, Daniel says, she's out there somewhere, Jack. Jack says, I know, so is Skara. So what do we do? We find him. A fine note to end the pilot on. Yeah. And then, depending on which version you watch, you see Kowalski's eyes glowing. Eyes glowing, yeah. Which, again, a good cliffhanger for the next episode. Um, but I also want to mention um, the scene at the, on the ramp, and you know the camera's kind of moving its way through the refugees, and then we get the big damn hero shot yep. of the four of them together. <laughs> like the, the, the team is not together together yet, that, but we do get to conceptually see all four of them together. And, you know, it's, it's, a, again, it's a nice moment for the show to kind of do that for us, to, to end on that note. And it is also quite nice that Kowalski is in the shot. He's just behind them. Behind them, yeah. Yep. Which I thought was a very nice aspect of that shot. I think we've covered most of the things I would want to say, other than technical questions, which this might be a, a, fa- a fair time for, which mostly are just going to be me saying a bunch of questions and you guys laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing at you before you say the questions. Well, yes. that, that's fine too. In uh, the Supergirl podcast, I would refer to these as the super science, <laughs> me trying to understand what in the world the show is actually trying to tell me. Yeah. Some of it makes no sense. Real kicker for me is, does every dialer have the same 38 chevrons? Yeah. And does the Stargate know where it is? Because I really kind of liked the idea in the original movie where six of the chevrons are basically defining three axes in space such that the overlapping point is the location you're going to, and then the last point is where you're coming from. But that would imply that there's only 38 possible starting locations if every gate had the same 38 chevrons. If they don't have the same 38 chevrons because the chevrons were implied also to be constellations. <laughs> well, constellations are meaningless. Yeah. Because they're merely a visual representation for where we are, and they actually have no meaning whatsoever in terms of a location in space. So that doesn't make any sense. If the 38 chevrons are like 38 waypoints of stargates in the galaxy, that might make sense. But then it's hard for any of it to work. Like, another aspect is Apothis uses these gates to go back and forth, but he hasn't done and He's just using the dialer directly, which means that dialer in Abydos should have been able to dial all the other planets because it doesn't need to be reconfigured to work with the drift. Like, I like the idea that the drift, the Earth Stargate doesn't work because of uh, stellar drift. That makes sense, but then it doesn't make sense for Abydos. I just got really lost. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. Is there an answer at least to, to, are all the Stargates in theory using the same dialer? Is that even known? I can't say I ever thought about the question. So certainly if it's ever mentioned in the series, it's not emphasized. No. There is more to come at a future point in this series about the gates and how they were set up. But that's going to be quite a while. I found it really funny that I have watched Stargate Atlantis. I have watched Stargate Universe. I have no idea how these gates in this show work. <laughs> they don't go over it to the same degree that they do in this show because... Exactly. 
This is the background. It's just known technology. Yeah, it's 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 part of yeah. It's it's part of the background. I'm very confused. I expected to be confused, and basically, I'm going to try and unlearn everything that the movie told me, and I'm going to try and relearn <laughs> what the TV show is going to tell me because it's at least going to eventually make a little more sense, and we'll just see how it goes. I'm assuming the whole find the seventh chevron for your known location that entirely is out. So I'll just find out what's going on as it happens. So there, actually, there's a couple of things. First, if you think about the movie hard enough, the movie doesn't make any sense either. No, absolutely <laughs> not. So don't think that, wow, the movie made so much sense and now the show's screwing it up. No. Nope, nope. No, I would say the opposite, really. The show explains a few things that- That the movie doesn't, yeah. I will tell you one thing. You don't need to throw out this idea that there's a, not a destination, a source Chevron. The seventh Chevron is a source Chevron. That was in the movie. They do not throw that away. So when you look at gate addresses- and again, the, the scene with all the gate addresses, they didn't really show them in too much detail. Wise. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, those gate addresses are six chevrons. A gate address is six chevrons. The seventh chevron is where you're coming from. That is not ever really specifically contradicted ever in the show. So you don't need to throw that part out. Um, the other stuff about, hey, wouldn't you need different chevrons and different planets? Don't think about that too hard. Okay, I'll just not think about it too hard. There is a tendency in the show to reuse props, and that is going to go against a lot of their attempt to make a coherent worldview. Like, you will probably never see another Stargate that isn't that same Stargate, because they had one star. Actually, you know that they had two Stargate props? They had the one that moves and the one that doesn't move. <laughs> And the one that the one that doesn't move is the one they use for establishing shots from further away on places. And then the one that does move is what they use when they need to use that. But yeah, there, there is actually a lot more coming about how Stargate's work. And this is actually one of the things that I like the most about the show is that they get all this time, they get 22 episodes, 20, 22 episodes a season to explicate, to expand on, to explain, and they don't completely waste that. <laughs> there are some really good moments to come about this. That's all stop. Because one of the other things about this podcast, which you were, everyone's going to notice, everyone's going to find out, is that a lot of it is going to be Andrew trying to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> and it's that's going to be fun. We're all going to have fun with that. I don't have that problem. I just don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if we do get through a whole bunch of seasons of this, and then we get to have another kind of looking back talk, and with you now knowing the stuff that we know, and we can all have the same discussion about it, I'm looking forward to that. Overall, I think this production group, if it is roughly the same production group throughout, they do a very good job of slow, steady world building. I was very impressed with that in the other shows. The other shows have their issues, but the one thing they do really well is a nice, slow world build. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how that flows in the original. Like this showing you, you know, you can see it in this episode, you can see it in the next episode. You know, the writing is not, <laughs> not like really stellar. The acting is not always really stellar. Stellar. Like, this isn't a prestige show. We're not getting really deep looks into the human condition. We're not getting analogies for important political or social events. This is a fun little adventure show. But one of the things, yeah, that, that set it apart for me was that that world building. And uh, yeah, I think, I think you're going to enjoy it. So there was a whole lot to talk about with the pilot episode. And so we're just going to do that for our first podcast. <laughs> a lot of back and forth and different versions of things and backfilling from the movie to the pilot. So I think this has been a good initial discussion. We've talked about some of the things we loved about the show, some of the things that you have to, you know, view with a critical eye at this point in time. But uh, I still think despite its flaws, it's a good show. It's it's fun to talk about it. And I've certainly enjoyed the discussion with you guys. I want to thank 
both of you for your careful attention to this and, you know, thoughtful comments. So uh, we will certainly be continuing our discussions, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Yep, sounds good. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.